Okay, we are, yeah, we are recording, and Peace, Love, and Meat podcast, episode 41 or something, or 141, or 12, or something. <laughs> and, uh, we got to uh, do, uh, do a shout out real quick, uh, Born, Primi- yeah. Born Primitive is running yes. a 20 point, uh, 20% off sale right now, um, but once again, used it all last year, had nothing but good luck with it, uh, some of the new iterations, some of the updates are even like yeah they're improving upon the improved upon uh what would you say your three favorite pieces are just to kind of give somebody a direction to where to start dude this is a good question because i literally used almost every single thing that you and i have gotten recently on my elk trip because i was all four seasons in a day basically while i was up there so i got to use everything um the both sets of pants the light and the heavies are unreal like i'm wearing the light ones right now i basically <laughs> wear those just every day yeah <laughs> um, Same. but Same. they're but they're real they're real good for early season stuff um but i wore the the head like the regular the heavy heavier ones they're not even i say heavy they're not heavy no they're, um, like, uh, they're still comfy but they're in, they're a little bit lined yeah so they're they're warm but they're you know they're thick and durable so like walking through all the wet and you know, brush and sage and all that kind of stuff that held up super well. And I stayed warm. Um, so I'd say either of the pair of pants and then, uh, probably one of the jackets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, probably one of the jackets, the, cause I had the green light, the light one, mm-hmm. the tundra light last year. Yep. Um, and then I got the heavy one this year, which dude, I, I only wore that for that, like two hours, Charles and I were getting, eating snowed, burritos on. On yeah. the, getting snowed on. Um, but it was awesome. So probably the, and then honestly, I like the hooded, the quiver, uh, the, no, the, well that too, but the base layer. One. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the, ridge, that, the, the ridgeline base layer. Ridgeline. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I always get the, the two of the names confused, <laughs> but the, the ridgeline hoodie one, yeah. uh, the half zip is, I, I love that. That's a super comfy one, but honestly, like they all have like all served their purpose in that, that weekend I was up there. But yeah. if I was to pick three, I'd say one of the pants, that ridgeline and then the hooded one. And then one of the, just the tundra jackets are, yeah like money. Yeah. That's the thing with me too, is it's really hard because one, I've depended on every single piece that I've, I've gotten. It's not like I've had yeah. equipment or, you know, gear come in and I'm just like, eh, I won't use that. I won't use that. I've literally used the lightweight base yeah. layer, the heavyweight base layer, the lightweight pants, heavyweight pants on and on and on. Yep. Um, I'm actually wearing the Ridgeline baseline t-shirt. This is probably my newest. Well, it's either this or the half zip Ridgeline uh, hoodie. The same one I you're like talking about. Yep. It's a part Merino, part um, part poly, I think. I can't remember exactly, yeah. but it's a hybrid material. Super light, dries super fast. Mm-hmm. I wore this T-shirt in uh, Oklahoma, 110 degrees. And, you know, I sweated in it. It was 110 degrees. But just sitting in the shade within a few minutes, it was dry. You know, yeah. and um, the, mm-hmm. the, the pants are so good the heavy like the the regular pants which is what i would, what I would call like a mid-weight because i do think they're coming out with a true heavyweight um, oh, nice. I, i'd think i'm not don't quote me on that but those are awesome either pan is amazing i really love the quiver half zip that's kind of like their mid-level that's a good um one. i like that one too it's like a hooded sweatshirt with some lining in it that i loved and it's super light super super light and it's got the hooded one has the the mask the in face it. mask part yeah. built into the hood which when i went to go put mine on i had my actual yeah. Uh, gator mask in my pocket. Yep. And then I went to go put it on. And when I went to pull my hood back over the top, I've caught the one that's built in. I'm like, Oh damn, I forgot there's one inside yep. this thing. So I like just yep. use that one. Yeah. Those are it that, sweet. It's, it's really well thought out stuff. And like, um, just, yeah. just a nod to Aaron Snyder. I think, you know, he was one of the pivotal people that just kind of like helped pick out what these things were going to be, how they were going to be constructed, where the pockets were. Yeah. And when you, when you wear them, you can tell somebody knew what they were doing. They constructed them like somebody yeah. put some thought into it. So I, I just can't recommend it enough. They're running a 20% off sale, which leads me to another uh, caveat, which is peace, love and meat being partnered with born primitive outdoors. Uh, we're going to get you guys an exclusive discount as well. You have to sign up for the email list. And once again, just to reiterate, once you're signed up, you automatically get that, that discount code. We're not going to bombard you with junk mail. We're not going to hit you with a daily motivation kind of thing. It's literally going to be um, 
when we think something is important or something is really, really cool or something that we couldn't share via a story, you know, so it's going to be a mechanism for us to communicate in a way that would only be beneficial via email, but signing up for that list will get you signed up for the, the discount for, for uh, born primitive as well as I think we should just do this. And I'm going to say, so you sign up for the email or you've already been signed up as of today. What is today? 10 fifth. The, the five, the fifth, the fifth, the fifth, the fifth. So it's October 5th. If you sign up by the end of this weekend or all the way back to you're already signed up now, uh, we'll get you entered in a giveaway for that lightweight Ridgeline hoodie. Nice. And some one pair of the pants you can pick either the light or the heavyweight. So male, female, yeah. whatever, we'll get you, we'll get you hooked up with that. Um, we'll also put this on the story just so people know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think it's, they're so encouraging of like, yeah, just get people wearing our stuff because once they wear yeah. it, they'll talk about it. And that's, for sure. that's pretty awesome for a company. Cause most times people are like, I just hope people buy it and forget that they even know who we are. Um, right. Because stuff isn't as good as they promise. And this stuff really has been, it's been great. It has. Yeah. I was, I was, su- I mean, I know just from you telling me a bunch, but it wasn't until I got a, all, you know, a bunch of the stuff and I got to actually test it, not just mm-hmm. wear it around, but like wear it up doing stuff Yeah, that I, you know, wanted it to be durable and fit well and still be what I needed it to be. And yeah, I was, I was really impressed. So it was cool. Yeah. Make sure you guys check them out. Born Primitive Outdoor. Thank you very much. So we have a, Q&A episode we're doing today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put up a, st- uh, well, I guess we put up a regular post yesterday and asked a bunch, you know, whoever wanted to, to participate to post comment with questions and we'd get to as many of them as we can. And we also got one or two via DM. Mm-hmm. Um, so make them remind me to make sure we don't forget either one of those. Cause mm-hmm. I have the, the comments open. Um, so really like I, we'll just pick one and start there and roll through it. There's, a handful of them that are directed to you specifically. Yeah. Um, so we, we'll kind of just bounce around and pick some other ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this one will be a fun one to start with. And this one is directed to you. Okay. Um, and this one's from our buddy, Chad from, uh, uh Chad Conley, the Fallen. Yeah. yeah. And he asked, uh, who would you be? I, I like how he said who, Yeah. because I think this is a different, you can maybe take this a different way than like, what would you have done kind of a thing? Yeah. Uh, he asked, who would you be if you never blew out your knees? Well, I'll leave it at this. I, um, I think it was, is a cause for reinvention. You know, like I've talked about before, mm-hmm. powerlifting was not like the, uh, you know, it wasn't like the heart song of my life. It was just that I was good at it. I was respected for it and I could make a living at it, you know? And I think a lot of people, at the time, I was telling myself this was my passion, but it was also like I was in a place where I needed a job. I needed something unconventional that was challenging. And, you know, I kind of built this thing through YouTube videos and coaching and seminars. So I probably would have stayed on that course and especially in that mindset because, as I've said before, you know, I used to think if I lived a 55, I didn't try hard enough, you know. So, really, if, uh, if I was living to that mindset, you know, I got hurt when I was 32, I'm coming up on 42. So really 10 years and I was already unhealthy. I was unwell as far as, uh, I was in no shape for anything other than three lifts, you know, squat bench and deadlifts is what I, I built my entire life around. So I think I just would have been a stunted version of myself because the injury caused me to look at myself and my life and how I treated people, how I treated myself, things I told people, things that I didn't tell people, um, you know, and when all these people that love you, quote unquote, love you, when you're doing well, when you're rising, when you're on top, and you look around and they're no longer there, but people that loved you before you were anyone, before you were just, you know, when you were just a guy, uh, whether that's your friends or your family or whatever, you look around and see who's left, and that's kind of for me where I started taking stock and building forward and really reevaluating myself because some of the things that I am most vehemently against now, as far as the industry stuff that I see, the way that big name influence type people treat people or the, I don't know what the, the expectation or the I'm above everyone else kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. 
I definitely understand how it happens. I mean, I definitely do because I, I am sure I can look back and be like, man, I cringe at the, the way that I did this or I cringe at how I did that. Mm-hmm. But man, I don't know in a, in a lot of these influence spaces, like you take the hunting industry, what would have to happen to a hunter for him to have like a reckoning with himself? You know, would he have to lose a friend like Cam Haynes did with Roy falling off the, the mountain? I don't know if that, right. that changed Cam, him, Cam Haynes for the better or worse. Only he can say that. But, you know, I don't know, like, does your bow blow up and you have a reckoning? Does, does your arm yeah. tear? Like what is going to cause that? So I don't know. But for me, I was in a sport where the stakes were high the the risk were high and i paid for it and a lot of that was ill preparation overconfidence over belief and uh i'm the man nothing can happen to me i don't have to prepare i can be at 80 percent and still win and 80 percent put me on the ground um and i think just for me learning that lesson having to look at myself as a mortal instead of invincible having to look at myself as someone that needed to build and tend relationships rather than burning through them um who would I be? I would be a fucking asshole because I was, you know, I was, I was a well-groomed asshole at 32. So I think I just would have been a magnified version of that at mm-hmm. 42 because I would have gotten stronger. I would have probably gotten more well-known. I probably would have made more money and I would have had more cause to be more self-centric and less world to not change. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there would have been more motivation yeah. because I was a heel, you know, I was a divisive character in the sport. Mm-hmm. And I think, you hear every wrestler talk about it. You hear every, you know, boxer or, or MMA guy mm-hmm. talk about it. And it's like even Connor. Bo Sandoval tells me he's like the nicest, most gracious, giving, caring person he's ever met. But the persona makes him the money. That's not what sells fights. Right. And, <laughs> and well, it's like George St. Pierre, like yeah. one of the best fighters in the world. And he's like, I really hope I fight good this weekend. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's like nobody cares about that. You know, right. it, they want to see the fight, but they, they like that kind of trash mm-hmm. talk and I played right into that. So that's not who I am necessarily. Like I will, I will right. not back down from anyone, but yeah. it's also like it's, there's a way to do it. That's professional in the way that I think a man should handle things. And I was just more of an entertainer in the sport, but my man, but who I was as a man yeah. started to take on the form of the character. So I'll, I'll, I'll do like a, an indexed part of this question for you. So I'll, I'll angle it from the performance side of stuff. Yeah. Right. Like mm-hmm. you were still on the rise of a lot of this stuff. Do you think because of how you're training, you said like the, a lot of the arrogance around training and show up at 80% or whatever, do you think an injury or something like that was kind of inevitable anyways, or were you, or how do you anticipate maybe like, would you, keep winning, keep getting, do you have like, what, what do you think performance wise it would have gotten to? I think honestly, man, I was, um, I mean, I did achieve more than I ever thought. Like when I went to Westside barbell, um, a 2000 pound total and my home gym, we had a guy that had totaled 2130 and a guy that had totaled 2060. This is at a time when like 2500 was otherworldly. Right. Yeah. And I can just remember, I literally went to, West side thinking if I total 2300, I didn't even think, man, if I'm the best in the world, it's like 2300 to me. When I looked at that list of names, that was the list of names of like, these guys are great and they could be the best. And that's all I ever wanted for myself was a fighting chance to be with amongst or compete with the best. And then occasionally if I have the opportunity, can I beat the best? So when I went there, 2300 was like, I never thought that was even in the cards for me until the end of my career. Well, my first meet, I did 2300 at Westside and then I go 2400 and then I go 2500 on and on. And it just was like, it was shocking to me. But I also think that there's a, there's a negative part of that too. When the the gains come easy, especially at the highest level, you think, Mm -hmm. okay, all right, this is, this is going to, keep coming easy. And it was, it did like I was doing all the right things. Um, as far as a lifter's concerned, I was gaining weight. I was eating the right foods. I was training very hard, mm-hmm. but when it became a business, you know, as far as, okay, I have to leave town on Friday for a seminar. I don't get back till Monday. My training was never the same element when I was on the road. And I started right. to see, even in that year before I got hurt, 
the detriment to my training, the detriment to my progress. I wasn't able to hold conditioning as well. I wasn't, you know, I was getting bigger, not because I was gaining lean mass, which was the the previous, like at 320, you could see visible abs, uh, 315, it was even leaner than that. But it was like, I was at that 330 point and I just had this little pot belly, you know, so I wasn't doing the same things, but I was cheating the system because what happens, mass moves mass. So I think I probably would have just been a, a bigger, sloppier, terrible version of myself, maybe a better lifter, but then I would have had to recalibrate at some point and start trying to fix the things. But the injury forced me to start fixing myself immediately. And the thing about that is I've had 10 good years, ups and downs, but 10 good years of health relative to like how easy is it to get healthy at 45 versus 35? How easy is it to get, you know, and, and health is, it does, it does come pretty quickly, but health is a compounding structure as well. And I feel better today than I ever, 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 ever have. You know, I've got a little bit of issue with my left knee as far as it stiffens up and it causes me to limp sometimes. But for the most part, like I do. A thousand it. surgeries will do that though. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you rip through the old knee, it'll do that to you. But I've, you know, I'm better for it. And honestly, I think it probably saved my life. I know it changed my life. So, mm. uh, you know, who one. would I be? I would like to think that I got enough. I got enough of something through my life that I would have changed even if I hadn't gotten hurt, but it didn't look good based on the current trend when I did get hurt. You know, I was, I was just not making good choices. Yep. Um, I'll ask this one. I'm skipping down a few because it kind of goes along in this same, uh, train of thought, Mm -hmm. kind of like a, where would you be kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'll just continue with it. This one comes, uh, from Jeff Lee. And we've done, uh, you know, each of us have kind of done this in the past a little bit, but I'll just let you continue on with this since it's kind of the direction you were going. And it says to Brandon, where would you be without Terrence? You know, I think Terrence was... And, a- then he, and he goes on and he goes on to say, you know, like kind of his experience with yeah. finding Terrence through you and that kind of stuff, which is cool. But it, yeah, go ahead. I, you know, I think... I think what happened when I met Terrence, so if you really put the timeline together... At 16, April of 16, we'll call that rock bottom. That was when, you know, I kind of came to grips with, I didn't want to live anymore. And I redefined that as I didn't want to live how I've been living anymore. I did want to live. So from 16 to 18 was running and rowing and hiking and just kind of like getting myself acclimated back to the outdoors. But I wasn't training. You know, I wasn't hitting the weights. Um here and there I would do some stuff, but I was just so like, I don't ever want to see a weight room again, you know? Um, and I, I, you know, I realized now that was just general avoidance. Like it hurt me. So don't go back into the place that hurt you. And when I met Terrence at summer strong, you know, he was just so excited and so gracious and kind and whatever. And I actually messaged him right after summer strong. And I was like, man, you know, and I don't know why, because there's there's a thousand other guys in the room that mm-hmm. look as good or in different forms of good as Terrence. But it was something about the things he was saying, the way he was speaking, his excitement for life. And um, that just became infectious. And it really it really gave me pause to the things of like because he would ask me some very hard questions, like if everything about your life was taken away, like if you were just Hiroshima you know, everything around you just leveled, who would you be? And what would your first next step be? Mm. And like, when you remove the, the constructs of society or your memory or your life, everything is possible, but it is because of society and our memories and the weight of, of momentum and things that we think I have to stay in this particular path. The reality, yeah. the reality of things is that Terrence reminded me that everything is possible. Everything is possible if you grasp the reality of what is then you can start the process of building what can become and it's a lot of times the lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from even starting to build anything so that was probably the biggest hurdle that terrence helped me recognize is that my path was only my path because i kept walking it you know and um from there just a lot of the you know let's strip everything back down to simplicity We don't need Mm -hmm. luxury. We need efficiency and simplicity. And, you know, I was very money driven. I was very success driven. 
And I didn't even know what success was. I didn't even know how much money I would have to make to make me happy. I just knew that if I kept on making more money, that was what you're supposed to do. If I kept on winning or having successful business deals, that's what you're supposed to do. But I was not a very happy person. I was spending more money to make more money, which is the way that it goes, Mm -hmm. instead of do I really want the things I'm even buying? Do I even desire the things that I am chasing? Or am I chasing those things because I'm told to or because others around me have it or because whatever? When I looked at Terrence, he seemed to be a man that was very, very at peace with the minimum. You know, like probably the biggest contribution Terrence gave me was the the foundation of, of my belief in, in what I call the naked truth. And that is the goal, the belief that there's someone out there that you can stand in front of with recollection of your entire life, your naked physical body, or your deepest fears. And that person can see you, accept you, and make you feel like those things are the way they should be. You know, instead Mm -hmm. of, like, we hide things or we try to spotlight certain things and darken other things about our life or our past or our history. And really, when that happens, you're you're never at a level of, this is who I am and this is who I get to be. It's like you're always one step behind the curtain, you know, or one foot behind the curtain trying to present yourself in another way. And Terrence really helped me. He was like, if you were in a perfect relationship, what would it be? And it would be that everything I'd ever done wrong was on the table. So that if it was found out or if it was told or heard or whatever, Mm -hmm. I was man enough to say it. I was man enough to own it. Um, As far as my physical naked body, for someone to be able to to see that and enjoy that and embrace that and vice versa. Like that naked truth was something that I was never, ever really chasing. You know, it was always like become this person or become this businessman or make this much money. So you start to characterize yourself around those things. Like if somebody said, hey, what's, what's your value? And this guy said, if, if you give a number, you're sick. Like if you give it, if you give a monetary number, you're sick. And that's how I was like, my value was based to the money that I earned or the things that I created or the, the wins that I had on competition instead. And I couldn't tell you who I was. I couldn't tell you the truth of who I was because I was always trying to formulate myself into this victory stance or this victory position. And I don't know if it was that I didn't believe that this as it is could do those things or if i thought that if i just do this or i do that or i say this or say that that it would circumvent and shortcut Mm -hmm. myself you know that's why Mm -hmm. i'm anti-hack that's why i'm anti you know whatever like i get the concept of it but man anything that i've ever shortcut i've usually had to turn around and patch holes If, if i do something the long way around even if it takes me a year longer or two years longer than it should I've probably patched every hole in the process. So that those are the things that Terrence helped me not necessarily know or learn about myself, but really explore about myself. Who am I? What do I want from this life? What do I want from a partner? What do I consider success for myself, not in a worldly sense? And what is love? What is hate? What is fear? What is courage? Like, you know, I'm an English major. I appreciate words. But I didn't always appreciate the the connection between the words and living a life through those words. Like, what's your passion? People answer that or ask that all the time. But I bet you most people that answer it will answer with what they're already doing. They won't right. really say, man, I wish I was building castles in 1600 England. Like, <laughs> right. you know, like there's some dude out there right now that is like that kid we talked about, the guy that is doing that stuff. Like his passion might be building old castles. Well, there's nowhere in the world where he can go and make a, a, you know, there's no place where he can go like, oh, if I go to France, I can do this. But yeah. if he becomes awesome at that because it is his passion, he will make a living at it because there's, yep. a, there's enough rich assholes around the world that want to build castles just because they can, <laughs> right. that he's going to stay busy. And that's, a, that's an obtuse example, but that's what I think it is. It's like you can't just chase your passion and go broke and go hungry, but if you really can define something in your life that you care about, that you want to do. Why aren't you chasing it? Why aren't you doing that thing? If you know, like if you know, and I think most people get to a point in their life where they look back and they're like, I wish I'd done that. 
And that's why, you know, the, the end of life conversations are so telling, you know, I wish I hadn't worked so much. I wish I'd have done this thing. I wish I'd have taken that trip. I wish I'd have kissed that girl. Most of life seems like regret, regret at the end. So I wanted to be a person who pursued things with clear understanding of why I'm pursuing things, not Mm -hmm. to just haphazardly take low hanging fruit options because those are everywhere. Invest in yourself to build build yourself up so that when you find the thing that you're looking for, you're ready for it. You know, you can't just wait for success. You have to go after it, but you have to build yourself so that you're ready for it when it comes. Awesome one. Uh, this one is going to be a little bit of a shorter one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually, I'll, I'll 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 take this one a little bit just because it's a little bit more where I am right now. But we've already done a couple of different episodes on this topic specifically. Um, so I'll point to a couple of those, but still give a little bit of an answer here just sure. so we're doing the best answer. This one comes from uh, Jonathan Berghorst. Mm-hmm. And very simple, how to start with traditional archery. <laughs> so um, you start by starting. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's really it. I mean, if you're looking for, I mean, I, we, we've done the breakdown. We actually have in a re- pretty recent episode titled The Archery Episode mm-hmm. um, where we talked a, a bit about this. And we've done it several times before. But if I was to kind of distill it down in terms of, you know, here's how you can actually make it happen by getting the basics, mm-hmm. right? Cause that's one of the nice things about trad archery. It's, it's a lot more affordable in general yeah. and it takes a lot less to get going mm-hmm. in my opinion. Right. Sure. So the one that I got, um, I literally ordered from Amazon. It's a bow called the Samick Sage. It's an excellent and, value bow. And it's great bow It's like 162 bucks mm-hmm. on Amazon for the bow. Um, mine's a 50 pound. They come varying weights or whatever. So, I mean, you can decide what that needs to be for yours based on strength. I mean, if you've never pulled back a bow in your life, I would probably tell you to lean a little bit lighter than that and then maybe go up from there. But, um, the cool thing about the Samix too, if you buy like a 40 pound limb, you can order just the limbs successively. So if you wanted a 45 or 50 or whatever. Yeah. And they're they're interchangeable and they're cheap. Yes. Yes, they are. Um, So I got that bow from Amazon. I got uh, a string made from America's Best Bow Strings, which I got one of their... 50 bucks there. 35. Yeah. 35 for that buck. Shipping, a few extra bucks or whatever, but yeah. So... um, A springy rest, about 34. Flemish string. Yeah, springy rest was... And maybe not even that much, because I got that one from Three Rivers, and I think it was 20-something bucks. Yeah, so you're $200. Springy rest. $215. Just right around 200 bucks in. Um, six arrows I got from my local shop mm-hmm. and I got the Easton, Easton classics, classics. They, they look like it's carbon, but it looks like wood. wood. They made it look like wood and they've got, fe- you know, synthetic feather veins on them. Um, and those ran right around 90 ish mm-hmm. bucks, maybe a hundred with tax and stuff for, you know, for six. So now we're just a little, maybe right around 300, a little over 300. Um, I have, I shoot with a glove. I don't use a tab. I like, I just like the glove better. So, I mean, you're looking maybe 20 ish bucks there for a good one. Tabs are 15, um, 20. Tabs are 15 to 20. And then you can get, you know, you'll need something to shoot at. So, if you want to go super, super basic, you can go to like a tractor store and get some hay bales, mm-hmm. fairly inexpensive. Or you can go to a place like Sportsman's and just the simple bag target that I have. Uh, was like seventy something bucks. Yeah, so, so right, so easily sub five hundred, but realistically, so five hundred bucks will get you more than enough. Yeah. to get started, mm-hmm. and then um, as far as learning how to do it, there's incredible resources that are free that are extremely more knowledgeable than either of the two of us yeah. when it comes to shooting <laughs> technique and stuff. Like, even though we can shoot decent sometimes, like we're, I'm, I'm still extremely new to this whole thing. You've got me on it by about a year and a half or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are masters at this that yeah. pump out free content. Like you wouldn't believe, like we've talked about, 
um, Mr. Clum, Tom Clum Sr., mm-hmm. and, and the whole family, honestly, over at Rocky Mountain Specialty Gear has awesome content. He's got an actual online course yeah. that he has. That's, I mean, if you want to go that route, I think it's like 200 bucks for the course that you get lifetime access to yeah. that goes over everything from shooting and I technique. Think, and I'm not sure, so I want to say this because it's a pack system. So they have, you got Joel Turner, who is Shot IQ, who is kind of yep. like the shot guru when you get the yips. Um, yep. Tom Clum Sr., Rocky Mountain Specialty. Mm-hmm. Just and he's an as a Olympic level four coach for archery. So this yep. is a guy that teaches, you know, the traditional under the chin, high accuracy, sixty meter shot down to the canned bow, you know, anchoring system mm-hmm. for twenty yard shots. So he covers everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've got Joel Turner. You've got the whole push team that that kind of organizes this. Those guys are great. They're phenomenal. Yeah. Um, you know, just really, really great info there. Uh, t- Cody Greenwood, he's the Trad Lab. He yep. builds. He does the killdata.com, analyzes the actual specifics of a you know an arrow flight, what kills, what doesn't, how far they go. So it's just like it, Snyder. Yeah, Snyder. I mean, it's just Faru cast and even his YouTube has really valuable stuff. And some of his, some of his stuff can lean a little bit more farther down the road type of stuff. Like he has some good like technique and stuff tips too, but he does a lot of like building of stuff, arrow building and bow setup and that kind of stuff, which can be helpful maybe a little bit farther down the road. Um, but yeah, him as well is a incredible resource. I'll tell you this, you know, just some, some quick math for most people. If you lifted weights at all, I agree with Ross, you know, 40 to 50 pounds is a great start. If you really want to become a technician, I think a a little bit lighter bow is a good start if you don't have any strength background at all. But I think for most guys, 50 pounds is going to be, might be a little heavy at first on your draw, but once you get used to it, that's going to be complimentary to shooting every day as well as taking it to the woods and hunting every day um my bow comes out a little heavier than that uh i started with a 59 i ended up kind of falling into a tune where i ended up about 56 and a half the buona because of my draw length is 59 and a half pounds Mm -hmm. so you know you can go as high as you want but i'm telling you i've put pass-throughs on big animals you know pigs deer um, different things like that at, at multiple distances. And what I shoot for is about 11 to 12 grains per inch or per, um, per pound of draw per pound. Yeah. So yeah. if you're at 50 pounds, 500 grain to 550 grain arrow is going to be money. Uh, Ross is at 50 and I build him a 580. that gets him a little closer to that 12 grains per inch. But yep. you know, I am probably defaulting somewhat to Aaron's mechanism on that because there's a guy like Cody who has, just pursued building the lightest, heaviest penetration arrow for a trad bow he can. And he got like sub, I mean, it was sub 450 grains, maybe even sub 400 grains and still killing. Whereas some guys like Dr. Ed Ashby, uh, get up to 13, 1400 grains and get a pass through on African games. And Aaron tends to fall more in that middle ground. And that's where I like to be is just, I, I want something heavy enough to fly flat and, smack what it's hitting i don't want Mm -hmm. it so so heavy that i can't shoot 15 yards with it you know so i I want something that's got some flight i like shooting so that would be my suggestion uh and then and then two two other points for for startup things also uh, you know one is maybe not maybe it is a necessity i mean it depends on if you're planning on hunting Mm -hmm. with it right or if you're just going to shoot but um a quiver of some sort yeah. Where whether it's like one on your back, one on your hip, or like even the bow mounted ones, there's a lot of good ones. Like our friend Drew from mm-hmm. Selway makes the mounted ones, which I've actually I sent you the picture this morning. I've got a cool one that's on the way I now. I am jealous. It's sick, dude. It's got it's got the the nomad the nomad strength logo laser engraved on the rawhide, which is dope. Um, but then also another guy that we know, Rick. Spicer, mm-hmm. um, he makes the, the over the over the shoulder on the back ones with all kinds of cool attachments and stuff. So I mean, it's all preference based on what you'd like. And if you just want to like put a a three inch thick PVC pipe on the ground to hold your arrows while you're shooting in your yard, like that's fine too. Yeah. Um, but then all of this, you know, if you if you're doing this on your own, like there's all of these resources that we've laid out that are all virtual in some place. But honestly. If you've got an archery shop in town, go there yeah. and like get to know 
the guys that are in that shop and tell them like I'm brand new, like basically everything that you, we just answered for you, they can do it, but they can do it like with you there in the store and help you through maybe technique stuff. If they do some instruction in the shop, also a lot of shops have like shooting ranges in them. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's all kinds of options, but I'm always a big fan of having like guys that are local in case something goes wrong, like something breaks, like you're in, you're in a jam and you need something right away. Like it's tough to get stuff ordered and shipped in a timely manner, depending on what it is. But if you've got stuff that you're getting from a shop, chances are they've got backups or something that they can help you with right away too. Well, so, and the thing about it too is, um, I encourage everybody. This is something I just did myself actually, but, um, every state has a traditional bow hunters association. Kentucky has two shoots a month and they have a dedicated range and, you know, they go there twice a month and your only requirement for membership is just to show up every once in a while to those shoots. Um, and I can tell you having gone to ETAR, which is the Eastern traditional archery retreat, this is thousands of people at this event and everyone is, you know, this the nicest, kindest, helpful, encouraging people in the world. Um, that go to those things. Go to some of those events. Even yeah. even if you're just a bystander, take your bow, watch guys shoot. People will talk to you. Why aren't you shooting, buddy? Why aren't, you know? Why aren't you shooting? And then you can say, yeah. I, "I'm new to this." And but and dude, you will have more help in in our community. Is awesome. It's it is it's, awesome. it's a really different kind of thing. You, I would almost you just have to kind of put it into the. Um, I would I would kind of liken traditional archery to the old. Uh, you know, anti-furnace blacksmiths, the no power tools kind of woodworkers. These are yeah. just an older, artsier, craftier type of crowd. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, they're not about you know they're not about anything other than the craft, and that's yeah. that's a very interesting. And they get pumped when people want to be a part of it. Like it's not like they're trying to be the exclusive like we don't want no. more people in here like it's the opposite almost like when people come over they're like stoked about well, it well they know how hard it is i mean like yeah like think about it you know you see you see a, a plethora of big name hunters and I, I would encourage you to look at the kills not all are, are far and not and not killing an animal at distance is wrong right but if your commitment is i want to get as close to these animals as possible with a yep. very very primitive weapon this is a good step in that direction. I mean, yeah, it will challenge you in ways that you never yeah. believed. It's more of a yeah, martial art sure. to me than that's a good way to look at it. You know, cause it's the body like a compound has so many things that help you aim. Um, not that it's easy, not that it's a given, but it, it has complementary things to help you become a better archer. There's mechanical advantages yeah. to it that you don't have on a barrel. Yeah. Stick in a string, man. You're the problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this one will will stick with the outdoors theme. Uh, so hopefully that was helpful. And again, we have another episode maybe a month or so ago called the archery episode. If you haven't heard that one, like we go even more in depth on a lot of arrow stuff, um, in that one too. So, uh, next one is from gray mountain cleaner. How do you balance strength and endurance for the backcountry? Are you working primarily zone two? Are we adding any mobility flows or power into these workouts? You want to give that one an answer? I'll follow up. I'll take the yeah. I'll take the first part of it. Um, it's it's actually good that he that he mentioned zone two because that was like going to be one of the first things from a metric standpoint of mm-hmm. of adding in or making sure you're getting some form of conditioning in that regard mm-hmm. like the zone two stuff has been huge and a lot of people that are maybe you know are aware of the heart rate zones and that kind of stuff zone two is not pegged out like it's it's actually a little bit on the lower end like you should zone two they say you should still be able to talk and have a conversation mm-hmm. uh throughout um I usually do it as I'm still nose breathing through most of zone two. Um, And that sometimes can even be difficult for people if they haven't practiced a lot of nose breathing stuff while their heart rate starts to get a little bit elevated. Mm -hmm. But um, that's my goal is to stay nasal breathing through all the way zone two. Um, But that kind of stuff can just be like rucks, Mm -hmm. right? Like just throw a backpack on and go walk or real light, 
you know, stuff on an air bike, stuff on stuff where you're not getting to the point where you're having to gasp or that. And so people tend to push past zone two really easily, mm-hmm. especially if they're deconditioned, like it doesn't take much. Yeah. So you're going to have to like hit the brakes more frequently to stay in that zone. But that zone is extremely beneficial for a lot of reasons, but hiking around in the mountains, you'll get to some parts where you're pegged out. If you got to make a steep push or, you know, a real good poke up an incline real fast to get somewhere, but you're kind of hovering a lot in that, zone two to like low zone three area, especially just because if you have a pack on. Yeah. Right. So a lot of that training is very beneficial from um, a conditioning standpoint, from a mobility standpoint. And honestly kind of goes with the conditioning feet and ankles and calves Mm -hmm. are like the priority when it comes to mobility and stability and stuff, especially if you're in out West where there's a lot of uneven terrain, you're side hilling a lot doing that kind of stuff. I've noticed, and I actually, got this piece of advice from uh, a guy named Joe DeStefano who used to be the head of sport at Spartan Mm -hmm. and he left and he's been doing his own coaching and stuff, but he's super smart. But he said like his main piece of advice for people that were taking on the longer Spartan events is like just to crank up daily steps because most people aren't prepared to just be on their feet for that long. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter if you, if you're super, if you train hard or whatever, maybe you like work hard for an hour and you go to CrossFit or you work hard, you train hard, whatever, but that's all you do. Your steps are, you know, in that five to 9,000 range, which is still decent, Mm -hmm. but now you're doing a race that's going to put you at 20 to 30,000. If you're doing a long race Mm -hmm. that you need to prepare for just being on your feet and having that load go through your joints and stuff. So even just cranking up step counts and going through all of that in preparation for being out in the mountains and hiking around, if nothing else, will just help your feet get stronger, feet and ankles and, and lower part of your leg get stronger to handle that volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, for me, coming from a strength background, this is going to sound very, you know, I don't know, it probably sounds a little inverse to what people might be thinking, but strength acquisition is the hardest thing the body can do. Um you can get strong very fast, but you can also injure yourself very fast. So strength acquisition that's applicable, reliable, and you know not overtaxing the system is my mm-hmm. is my optimized goal. I can get in condition, or I can get someone conditioned, even if they're overweight, even if they're weak. I can get them conditioned quicker than I can get them strong. So mm-hmm. the basis of my training is around strength. I yeah. I tend to focus on. As of now, I would say I do no power movements in the, in the sense that I'm not doing anything for less than five reps. I'm not doing right. something at a maximum level. So I get a little bit of that zone two touching zone three even to – From the training from itself. From the training itself. Yeah, um, totally. You know, I would rather be able to deadlift 315 for 25 reps successively than to yeah. have a 500-pound deadlift for five sets of three. You know, yeah. like for me, applicably – a 300 pound man on a jujitsu mat or 300 pounds of meat as far as an elk or something like that, maneuvering that would turning a downed elk, would a 500 pound deadlift be more beneficial than 300? Yes. But the practicality of getting that elk off the mountain, 300 for 25 versus 500 for three for a few sets is going to be a different result. So you have to kind of, again, assess where you want to be, what you want to achieve and what that will take. Um, if you want to pack out heavy animals, well, I don't care how conditioned you are. If you're in the best shape in the world, if you do no lifting whatsoever, it's probably going to be a a cumbersome event. If you're so strong that packing out should be easy. Now we just have to get you in shape. And that's, that's fairly easy through the consistent movement, the daily, the not daily rucks, but somewhat like weekly rucks two to three times a week where you're getting some weight on your back and moving. I agree entirely with you should be a strength athlete first. You should get conditioned for your health. And then as your your optimum desired range of conditioning is getting closer for a hunt or any kind of event, that's when the strength just becomes a maintenance program and your conditioning goes up. I don't think you need to have this high threshold of I'm going to run a marathon every day to be a successful hunter. Um, Guys like Cam Haynes have popularized some of that, and I appreciate and respect the shit out of it. But it's also like I saw a dude that was 62 years old that looked like he hasn't missed many meals in his life, just killed a bull and packed it off of a, the same kind of mountain range yeah. that you know Cam Haynes would hunt on. Didn't have 
guides carrying it out for him, didn't have a bunch of people helping him. It was him and his son, 62 years old, mm-hmm. overweight. But what does he do? He rucks five days a week before the mountain. That's it. He's not strong. Yeah. He's not in super great health look, but he got it done, packed that thing off the mountain because he yeah. trained for that specific portion of the event. And Strong enough. Strong enough conditioned for the for the game. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I try to be stronger than and more conditioned than, but strong enough is, is much better than weak. That's a good answer to the question. Let's take a quick technological break real quick and then we'll hop right back in yes sir all right we're back short break and we have really what is like going to be one more question that we'll hit for sure today and then what we're going to do is um break it here and then do a part two of this q a where the rest of the questions that we got are all kind of in the same topic theme. Mm -hmm. So we figured it'd just be easier to kind of dedicate an entire episode to that theme. And uh, if you're listening to this this week, we'll leave the post up, put a couple more questions. If it's going to be in the same kind of thing, which is going to be, you know, if you're in the 35 plus age, you know, what we would consider quote unquote older, athlete, right? Just in terms of athletes, uh, any kind of training questions in that age range, that's kind of going to be what we tailor this next episode to. So we'll leave the post up, go put some comments in there if you have questions about it, but we'll have one more question that I think will be a fun one to end on to. Um, this one comes from, I don't know if you say his last name, Durrett or Durrett. Yeah. Johnny. Uh, Oh, actually I read that wrong. Sorry. Not him. Sorry, Johnny. We'll put that one next week. Great dude, uh, though. He's a killer. Kevin Bishop. Yep. I'd love to know if you have a cookbook you recommend to A, begin cooking towards your style of eating, or B, start off as a beginner to look certain techniques or arrangement of different flavors. I'll be honest. My cookbook was YouTube. Um, yeah. I got into the cookbooks kind of in, in reverse. I do love old cookbooks because uh, my nana and grandmother were both really big into that and some of the old handwritten note cards. So I have a deep appreciation for that. Um, Bourdain's cookbooks, uh, they're a little bit higher end restaurant style. Bought those more as a, as a support to him, but also knowing I would probably never cook that way. But it's also mm-hmm. to kind of learn some of that stuff. Really and truly... I just started watching a lot of uh, like steak masters, grill masters mm. on YouTube, watching a lot of um, cooking shows and different things. Like I've always grown up around cooking shows. I don't know why. I mean, like the Food Network was always on. My dad always liked watching. Always on in our house. Yeah, I always like cooking shows. And my dad, uh, we have a little bit of a difference of opinion on when a steak or a hamburger is done. But um, apparently he's a hockey fan. I don't know. But anyway, uh, the, uh, you know, I wanted to really capture this more because I started hunting game and I wanted to capitalize and utilize that meat to the most, um, to the most beneficial level of enjoyment. Cause I, you know, I didn't want to kill it just to eat myself. I wanted to feed my friends. I wanted to feed people that I knew would enjoy yes. it or had enjoyed it before. And, um, I was lucky enough to have some people present game in a very different way. You know, I grew up eating fried backstrap or fried everything, you know, everything. And it was good. Like I still enjoy that, you know, but taking a, a tenderloin or a backstrap and, you know, either you sous vide it or you slow cook it or you, you cook it at a low temperature and then do a reverse sear or however you do it. Um, mm-hmm. I would just encourage you to look at people that are cooking the foods that you want to eat in a way that you want to eat, in a lifestyle that you want to live and start watching and start observing yeah. and even copying. Because I can tell you, I went from cooking a steak to 123 degrees pre-sear or pre-reverse sear and then taking it out and searing it to I like 127 degrees pre-cooked and then I sear it. Um, and mm-hmm. what that comes down to is Instead of having that last little line in the middle that's almost kind of like a raw or a blue, it just kind of 
finishes all the way through to a nice even pink through the middle and a little bit of a ring of, of brown around the edge. I mean, that's just a more lucrative piece of meat for everyone that might be looking past the, the cutting board, looking at a piece. You know, if I have my preference, I go a little bit more raw, but in a general presentation for my friends or people that I want to feed or people that I love that I'm trying to make, you know, a special moment for, um, I am willing to forego my own preference to a little bit more of that moderate yeah. midline, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, so it just comes with all that. Like you're going to ruin pieces of meat. I'll tell you a great piece of meat to practice on is eye of round. You can get four of those for 12, 14 bucks, you know, a good six ounce circle. Yeah. Go to town, practice, season it, marinate it, uh, do dry rubs, do wet rubs, do everything that you can just practice and play. And meal prep will help you with that. Cause you got to cook it five or six days that week. Yeah. Look at five or six different ways and see how much closer you get to what you're actually looking for. So I don't think that there's a, a cookbook that I would necessarily point to and say, this is the be all end all. Mm-hmm. I would more or less say, follow some of these cooking pages, see the things that they're preparing, look at how they're doing it and then start individually following those people. Cause I guarantee you, if they have a page, they're going to be sharing tips. They're going to be sharing ideas. And Instagram. That, it's like, this, it's the best thing on Instagram right now yeah, in general. It's yeah. just like the, the amount of cooking resources that make awesome stuff that you can be like, Oh, I could figure that out. You yeah. Know what I mean, or, and it's all again, you know, just like the archery stuff, you know, everybody, I have a Traeger. Everybody loves Traeger. Pit Boss makes a great one. Uh, Rec Tech makes a great Rec smoker. Tech, yeah, it, and it's like all things. Like I was, I was just afforded an opportunity to work with Traeger on a couple of projects that afforded me a grill. You know, would I have necessarily rushed right out and bought that grill? I don't know. Like I don't, I don't know. Had I not been yeah. experienced around it or, or presented in a way that it was like everybody I knew was using a Traeger, I might have ended up with a Pit Boss. I don't know, but that's what I ended up with. I use it. I love it but I still cook on the fire 75% of the time, you mm-hmm. know, but that's just because I like the intimacy of the fire. I like charcoals. I like wood. I like the heat. I like the flame. Um, a Traeger is pretty much like a, a grown man's oven. And I, I'm not saying that. Set as it a, and forget it. I'm not saying that as a takeaway. If you want amazing flavored food, that's the go-to. I like the challenge of something being messed up. You know, mm-hmm. like I like the open flame. I like to be able to, I don't know. I just like that stuff. So that's kind of the the path that I took was oven cooking to grill cooking to pellet grill mm-hmm. cooking to back to fire. And that's been three or four years of pretty dedicated. You look back through my Instagram for maybe four or five years now. Yeah. There's a lot of cooking stuff in there. There's um, and then in the in the wild game arena, I mean, because that's a whole separate demographic of people and mm-hmm. chefs that like, I mean, obviously if you're looking at wild game stuff, what Renella and the meat eater guys have done the last handful of years, have yeah. bringing that more popular ways of preparing wild game. There's a lot of, they have several cookbooks that are good. I have like two, I think I have two of them. Um, I have the actual cookbook that he did. And then like the complete guide to whatever that includes some recipes still, but that also includes a lot of butchering stuff, which is yeah. valuable information. I think also. Be, I, again, that was going to be the one book that I would say, like if you're in, yeah. if you're in the game or if you're just into like some really cool preparation and want to use it for, for beef, yeah, the meat eater cookbook would probably be the one I would it's say great. go that direction. Cause Steve is a great, uh, he's a great middleman to kind of like mm-hmm. explain things at a high level, but also dumb it down to the, to the lowest level. And, and then uh, there's two like really high level guys like Hank Shaw. Yeah. Who's awesome. But then also a buddy of mine, Larry white, who his Instagram, uh, it's, he actually changed it recently to his name, but it used to be wild game gourmet. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he had, and he actually did a podcast episode with him a year or so ago. Um, but he makes awesome stuff and he, and he comes from, like fine dining training. Yeah. And so he uses a lot of that influence into the wild game stuff, which actually it makes it incredibly awesome to look at obviously, and then tastes really good also, but he teaches and has recipes and breaks it down. So it's actually accessible. If you have any desire to learn how to do it, it's not just like you have to be some classically French trained chef in order to pull these off. Like that's kind of the cool part about it. Yeah. Here's another one that I really like. Um, I followed her a lot closer a couple of years ago and she kind of just exploded. Um, but her and her husband are big hunters from Nevada. She runs Nevada foodies and I'll just Mm. say like, this is her page right here. You can see it's just all amazing food all done with game. 
Oh yeah. And it's just step-by-step preparation, a lot of recipes. Yeah. That was just the first one that popped up in in my, uh, in my Instagram, but there's, there's like seven or eight pages and meat eater has a couple of guys. One is a waterfowl guy. Does a lot of pig stuff down in Texas. Does the Mm -hmm. hill guy that are tied in through meat eater. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. He's, been on Rogan. He's, he's cooked for Rogan a few times too. They um, had a good episode of Meat Eater with him down there yeah. when they did that. Yep. That was a good one. That was yep. a good cooking one. But I can't remember his name. I've actually talked to him online a couple times. Um, but yeah, like again, these are craftsmen. These are people that mm-hmm. care very much about it. And every single person on a cooking standpoint that even had like, you know, not a million followers, but if they had a 50,000, 60,000, whatever. Um, they were, they were willing to answer and communicate and like, mm-hmm. Oh, here I have this other video, this or that. And I've just, I've done as, it's just like how I do everything. I go down the rabbit hole of YouTube. I go down the rabbit hole of Instagram. And then the people that I really kind of like navigate myself towards that might be an email or that might be a direct message of like, Hey, mm-hmm. I've watched all your stuff that I can. This is the one thing I can't figure out. What do I do? Right. And they're, they've always been helpful. So the number one thing, just like archery, start doing it. You know, start mm-hmm. picking up steaks, start picking up the kinds and cuts of meat that you want to cook, and just get to practicing. I mean, you are gonna you're gonna be terrible. You're gonna burn steaks. You're gonna leave steaks raw. You're gonna have perfectly cooked steaks that looked like they weren't even seared. You know, it's like mm-hmm. learning how hot to get your pan, learning how to regulate temperature on a grill, learning how to regulate temperature on a fire, like. There's all levels to it. And even, even like slow cooker stuff too. I mean, that, I mean, you'd think that would be something that would be easy, but I can't tell you how many times I remember like opening up and be like, how is seven hours not enough? But now I've, I've misjudged my time and it's like seven 30. I'm like, well, now we can't even eat this tonight because I got to let it go for another two hours or whatever. Here's the the trick on that. I'll tell you, man, because I've done the same thing, Mm -hmm. but, um, there's, uh, there's a, a dish from, south america called carbonata and they take a they take a pumpkin and they hollow it out and they fill it with um with meat and potatoes and carrots mm-hmm. and pumpkin and all this other stuff and it's amazing spiced amazing like just ridiculous but what i will do when i make the meat portion of that is i will start it in the crock pot um i'll put one whole uh container of stock mm-hmm. and you know I've been also because I, you know, feed enough people that I've learned some people like peppers that are cut up and some people just like the flavor. So what I will do is I will typically roast all my peppers, onions, my aromatics in the oven beforehand, Mm. skin them, blend them up. And then that just becomes a puree that I pour over the, Mm. over the meat. You get all the flavor, you get all the abundance of like that oomph without, you know, having to pick through chunks or whatever. So stock my, jalapeno green bell pepper carrot celery onion my mirepoix plus plus i blend that down pour it over salt whatever levels of seasonings i want pepper uh, i like cayenne seasoning on everything i just for the heat i put that in there four to five hours two on high two on low and then i take it out and i cut it up and i put it into a dutch oven low heat put all the liquid back in there reduce it down add water when i add the water just start chunking that stuff up until it shreds and then that's when it would go into like the pumpkin with the carrots and the potatoes and all the other how long stuff. when you do it uh, how long is it when you're on the in the dutch oven when you're doing it's all heat that based if i put it on low it can go another hour that way if i put it on yeah. like, uh you know you got a zero to ten you put mm-hmm. it on like six you're, you're done in 20 minutes you put it on yep. eight or nine you got to stay by the thing you know because yep. it's going to reduce down really fast I am more of a low and slow guy on everything or middle ground. So I go high heat in the crock pot down to low heat in the crock pot to a middle heat on the Dutch oven and I'll cook it down two or three times. Cause what I think about when I do that is every time that it cooks down, those pores of that meat open up and then you add cold water to it and they shrink back up. Mm. So, and what do you, what does everybody say? Oh, that chili was better the next day or that soup was better the next exactly. day. So a lot of times what I'll do, if I'm going to eat at seven, that meat is done cooked by three o'clock and then I cover it. Don't put it in the refrigerator. I just cover it and let it cool until about five thirty or six, take it off or take the lid off, put it back on and just put a bunch of water in there, like more water than you would ever want in your, in your meat, but mm-hmm. it reduces down and it just heats that nice up. It heats the meat up nice and slow. 
and that reduction goes down, it starts bubbling and churning and everything else. That is the tenderest, most delicious meat ever. And I, I cook it taco style. I cook it uh, Asian style. I cook it, you know, just a variability of, of peppers and seasonings. And it's always, always money. I mean, it's just so tender, so flavorful. Um, that's probably my shared recipe right there. Was just get you a good chuck roast into the pot with all those ingredients. Take it out after about four hours. Chop it up into like stew-sized pieces. Just keep reducing it, adding water, reduce it, add water, and just take you a, a fork or like a wooden spoon and just break that meat up. Nothing better, man. Get some rice, get some veggies, whatever. It's unbelievable. Put it on a sandwich. Perfect. Yep. Sweet. I think that'll do it for this one. Thank you for the questions, guys. Um, had fun answering these ones. We'll do the other part of it next week. If you, again, if you have any questions kind of tailored towards the, you know, 35 plus training style of stuff questions, we'll leave that post up, go comment on them and we'll get to them in the one for next week. Uh, make sure you sign up for the newsletter. Cause like we said, we're going to have some born primitive stuff coming at you and that'll do it. Thank you guys. Thanks a lot, Ross. Thank you guys.